Welcome to episode 172 of the Cognicast, a podcast about software and the people who make it. Our host this week, Christian Romney, talks with Janet A. Carr about her career, life as an independent closure consultant, robots coding, and writing about programming. But before we begin, I would like to remind everyone that we are hiring. Check out cognitech.com slash careers.html or reach us at jobs at cognitech.com. And now, Janet and Christian. Hi, everybody out there. This is Christian Romney bringing you another episode of the Cognicast. Today, it's my distinct pleasure to introduce our guest, Janet A. Carr, independent closure consultant. Janet, how are you? Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me, Christian. Oh, it's my pleasure. Been wanting to do this interview for a while. I first got turned on to some of your writing by a colleague of mine, Jarrett Binford, who's the, one of the producers of the show, and he's just been super psyched to get you on the show. So I'm really glad we got an opportunity. Yeah, me too. Cool. So, well, you may know at the beginning of every show, we ask each guest to relate to our audience some experience of art. So take it away. Yeah, I, you know, I don't even, you told me about this and I'm like, I'm not even prepared. So I'm friends with an artist and I see his work. It's rather dark, but yeah, I don't. Tell us a bit uh, more dark in what way? It's just the imagery is dark. It's usually very distorted. I would not be able to say that he has like a style. There's some, there's like pop art and there's like, there's like, you know, certain artist style like you know if you if you see a rembrandt you're probably going to know that it's a rembrandt right but if you see his stuff it's it's just his it's just david so that's cool and where is david from he is south african cool well for that matter where are you from why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself yeah so i am i'm canadian i live in toronto and yeah i just grew up on the east coast of canada i am i'm your stereotypical Canadian, I guess. <laughs> All right. We'll have to unpack what that means, but that's cool. So you are also, as I said at the top, you're an independent closure consultant. So I guess tell us a little bit about your consultancy. Yeah. So I, I just started like in May, 2021, I was a generalist, mm-hmm. but then I got fired from my first gig. And so then I got a, a closure gig and I decided, oh, I should be, I should go all in on this. And did you know Closure previously or did you pick it up just for the gig? Yeah, I I knew Closure. So my first job in the software industry was a Closure job, full-time Closure job. And that qualified me for a Closure job here in Toronto, which is how I ended up moving to Toronto. Neat. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess you could say I have like, quite a bit of experience with closure. Well, it reads that way. I was just, I was curious if you had just like somehow absorbed it all in a very short period of time, or if you'd been working on it for a while. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) Cool. And so, yeah, tell us a little bit about life as a consultant. So this is actually an area of interest of mine. I have done quite a bit of consulting myself. So I, I think we've probably got a lot of interesting ground to cover here. Yeah, well, I I've always for a long time I've wanted to be self-employed. I know that. And yeah, I just after like a few 
failed businesses, I just decided I have to do this. Like I just have to do something. Yeah. And so I guess the, the service business is the easiest to start. Easiest in one sense. Sure. Definitely easiest to start hardest to keep going. That's true. It, yeah. It, yeah it, it definitely has its own challenges. Like I don't want to, I don't want to play it down because it, it's tough. I'm not going to lie. It's tough. And that's really part of the motivation for my blog is just to like marketing, basically content marketing. Yeah. That's, that's brilliant. I wish we had done a lot more of that when, when I was sort of in that space, what would you say are like some of the most rewarding aspects of being a consultant? Well, I'm not, I do fixed rate work, right? So I guess the thing about it is closing a sale. Like that always feels good to close a deal. And then finishing before my committed deadline, that always feels good. And making, I don't know, the time freedom and the knowing that I own my IP, like it's, it's just a hundred percent better for me than being an employee, I guess. Cool. Do you mind if I unpack some of that? Cause that's like super interesting. I think there are already some interesting differences between how you sort of approach consulting and how I have in the past. And I'm like, so eager to learn about your experience. So you said you do fixed rate. Is that like, so you'll bid on a scope and give a just fixed bid for the whole project or sort of how do you break that down? Yeah. So I don't, I don't really do bidding, but I do do it's, it's like, yeah, you're right. It's just the fixed scope. I'll break down a project into deliverables Mm -hmm. and then I charge like a deposit upfront and then I kind of estimate how long it'll take. And then I put like a risk margin on it. Right. Makes sense. That's cool. Any, any sort of pitfalls you ran into? Did, did that take a while to kind of dial in or did you sort of have it pretty well figured out like as soon as you got started based on, I don't know, prior experience or something? That gig I told you about before where I got fired, that was actually an hourly gig. And that was really stressful. That was so stressful that I, I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. And and it's also a little unethical because hourly work incentivizes the consultant or agency to finish longer like to take longer to do the the work. And so fixed rate, I knew from the, like from very early on that it would incentivize me to finish faster. Cause that makes your hourly, if you break it down hourly, that makes the hourly rate go up. True. Interesting. How do you guard against like, well, what's your approach to guarding against things like scope creep, for example, I guess it's all, you, you must spell it out pretty in, in pretty good detail when you're crafting the proposal or that's interesting when you would say that because I I actually word the deliverables kind of vaguely mm. and that's really for the client's benefit so there's a little bit of wiggle room but if we deviate too far from from the spec right then I I just like draft up something called a change order and then I work with the client to come up with like a new new pricing and adjustments to all that stuff neat and it's worked out, it seems. Yeah, it is. It is working out. Well, we'll see if I can survive this tech recession that we're having. Yeah, I can imagine it's been hard. And would you say that like most of your leads are sort of referrals, like word of mouth, or how, how do you get most business? Well, lately, a lot of leads have been inbound, thanks to the blog. But yeah, I do a lot of cold outreach, and then I also have like a lot of recurring 
repeat business from existing clients. So right. That's great. Good for you. I'm so excited. I'm very happy to see software consultancy, especially small software consultancy alive and well. So good. Awesome. I had a, a small consultancy with a couple of partners for about a decade, and we we struggled mightily with the sales and marketing bit, something that you seem to do, do a lot better than we did. I, I was curious to pick your brain about it. I'm sure there, that there are quite a number of closure developers out there that, you know, maybe listen to the podcast and are sort of in the same boat and will appreciate your advice. So I I wonder, I'll just ask you explicitly, maybe it's not necessarily something we covered, but what advice would you give, you know, a closure developer that's kind of maybe not thrilled in the job that they have and they're thinking about striking it out on their own? What would you have to say to somebody like that? My advice would be to have a whole bunch of savings in your in your savings account like at least at least six months it takes a while to make the transition that's what i did and then yeah it's it really boils down to figuring out after that how to line up leads and then that's just like the journey that every consultant or freelancer or whomever has to like go through just to it's just part of the gig and i think i explained this to my friend jordan on her podcast i suspect a lot of new freelancers and consultants, they don't do the leads, lining up of leads part yeah. and then trying to close work or they they get stuck trying to close like big clients where they're writing these proposals that don't go anywhere and stuff like that. And I don't bother with any of that. But yeah, get leads, have savings and then close work as fast as possible. Yeah. The savings part is definitely super important and not only at the beginning, but like the entire time keeping a a buffer is super important. Oh, absolutely. Like you just have to embrace being a business owner, essentially, right? You have to save all the good times are good so you can weather the bad times. Absolutely. One of the lessons we learned that lesson sort of the hard way, even when we had sort of four or five stable clients working with startups is inherently risky is another mm-hmm. another thing I would add to that. And a client that is really good at making regular payments can suddenly turn into a client that takes forever to pay an invoice. If you're dependent on that cash flow to sort of meet your expenses, you are going to be in a bit of a pickle if you don't have a buffer, which was definitely a situation we ran into. Absolutely. Yeah, very interesting. I'm, I'm curious, and I guess you mentioned your payment terms where you asked for a deposit up front. Have you ever had resistance to that idea? How do you think about that? No, I've, I've never really had resistance to it. I think the reason why is because I immediately say that it comes off the first invoice. Like it, it is well and truly a deposit, right? Right. And I charge, you know, the deposit is like usually between 10 and 20% of the project total but I literally hold that in my business bank account. Like I don't touch that until the first deliverable has been accepted by the client. And then I take it off the invoice or my accounting software does it automatically. Nice. Cool. That's neat. I'm learning a lot. Thank you for sharing. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) We toyed with, so we had a a big client that that was just a non-starter to give any money up front and they insisted on net 30 terms and it worked fine 
with them, thankfully, that was a, a good outcome. But then we made the mistake of sort of adopting that model with all of our clients. And that was not a good a, a good business decision. So yeah, listen to Janet. She's got great advice. <laughs> What's you said net 30? What, what's that? Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's 30 days after the invoice is received is when the net balance of the invoice is paid, you know, minus any, you know, credits or, you know, other stuff that may that may impact that. But yeah, it was some goofy accounting term. Oh, okay. I got you. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, let's talk closure. So you were, you said your first gig, your first programming gig was using closure. How did you luck out? How on earth? Like that is, sounds like such a unicorn story. I I love to hear more. Yeah. So I I guess it was just like luck. Very (laughs) lucky. I lived, I was on the East coast of Canada in a small city where I was in university, a couple of my friends, they worked at this place. And one of them was like, Hey, we use closure. I know you're into functional programming. You should let me try and get you a job here. And then another friend who was like a staff engineer there, he was like, yeah, let's, let's do it. We'll we'll try and get you a job. And so they brought me to a launch party for this company, for this company's product. And so I ended up drinking my face off and meeting, (laughs) talking with the CTO. He said something along the lines of, when are you done school? And I was like, oh, you know, eventually, eventually, because I wasn't a very good university student. Yeah. And then like a week later, I went in for the job. I like, I went in for the interview and I got the job most just all because I liked functional programming. Like I was, I was really into Scala and Haskell in university. Right. And yeah, it, I think that company came to be because it was a startup started by a couple of guys that I knew in school and they were huge functional programming nerds as well. And then that startup got acquired by this big company in Austin, Texas. And so, yeah, that that's how like closure came to be in this place. And then they were like, Oh, Hey, you're like one of the very few people that knows functional programming, like you should come work for us. Forget school. We don't care about school. What was your experience like coming to Closure from Scala and Haskell? It was it was different. I wrote like C-based languages most of my life. Like I started writing code when I was pretty young and it was all just C-based stuff. And so I wanted to, I learned about Scala in university and I wanted to learn like I wanted to be good at it, but I didn't get it. Mm. You know, like I didn't, I didn't really get Scala. So I, I learned that if you want to learn functional programming, you should learn Haskell. And so that's what I did. I read this book, learn you Haskell for great good or something like that. And then I, I kind of got functional programming after that. And then I started, then I went back to playing with Scala for a bit and that was fun. And then, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it was. I was just, a programming nerd, basically. That's fun. And were, were you going to school for programming at the time? Yep. Yeah, yeah. I was I was studying computer science at a university. Cool. I I, I asked that. I mean, I, I the danger of sounding like well, duh. But a lot of a lot of folks come to you know the industry from from other fields. I mean, that's that was certainly my story. I know a few others. But, Absolutely. But yeah. Yeah. But it, it, it's definitely useful. I think. Well, tell me, I, 
What do you think? Is it, how do you weigh in? I'm, I'm totally going to fish for hot takes, by the way, because in doing some research, I found some, some great ones from you. So <laughs> okay. uh, what, what do you think about the importance of computer science, of some grounding in computer science, let's say, for professional developers? I, it's so hard to say because like, I think it depends on the context, right? Sure. And I think it depends on the context and the scale that you operate at. So if this is like some two-bit startup and they're deploying on Heroku and they've got like, it's just not, I don't know. It's just not like, I don't think formal CS education is like necessary, but I think it helps. Sure. And I don't, I don't really care for the idea that it's used as like a screening tool almost. It's, it's almost just like interview prep. I hardly ever use anything that I learned in school when developing. And I'm, sh I'm sure I'm probably going to get a lot of crap for saying that on the internet. <laughs> well, that was certainly, certainly wasn't my intent, although I, I was sort of fishing for a hot take. I know. That's yeah. fine. Yeah, no, that's I have like some some quotes for from your Twitter stream and from other things that you've written, and some of them I just absolutely love. One of them that you said about personal growth is, if you put yourself in a box, you'll grow to the confines of the box. So I, I'm, I'm curious if you remember that and what the context was, even though I wholeheartedly agree with you. You know what? I actually saw that tweet the other day, and the, it was the full stack developer oh that's right is a fantasy i think and yeah honestly i learned a long time ago that you know if you call yourself a software developer instead of like i don't know an entrepreneur or whatever you're just like you probably won't even consider that you can do some some things or certain possibilities certain doors will be you're closing certain doors for yourself and so yeah i just not to i didn't mean to like make a platitude on Twitter, but I was just like, that is frankly bull crap. Like it, it's, it's totally fine. Totally possible to become a full stack developer. And I told, I told Jordan this actually that, you know, you have to look at the person making the tweet as well. And if this is an agency software agency owner or consultancy owner, then maybe they just want like more billable hours, more billable people hours or whatever. Right. I mean, that's a little, that's a little like conspiratorial of me. I, oh, but, well, I mean, no, I mean, I've, I've certainly seen, you know, a lot of that, but I think, you know, the flip side of, of what you're saying, like in the positive sense, I think, I mean, I don't know if, if, if this is your experience, but as an independent software consultant trying to make a living from, you know, what we do, it's certainly more helpful if you, if you have broad skills, right. And so, you know, you can just, you're capable of taking on work that otherwise you would have to turn down. I mean, if you're, you know, ethical and responsible, you're not going to take a job doing something that you, you, you really have no business doing. But, but I, I mean, just as a sort of survival mechanism, it's like, you know, I, I need to learn some front end, you know, how to, how to be competent doing front end work because that's half the gig or half of the available gigs and, you know, vice versa. I wonder if you, if you agree yeah. or not, or, you know. Well, yeah, I, I see where you're coming from, but in business, I find that it's always better to actually niche down. And mm -hmm. we have the, we have the luxury of being closure developers. So we, we know, like, if you know closure, you kind of know closure script, right? And so we kind of, we have that luxury, but I mean, I do know, I have shipped JavaScript code with react 
I ship plenty of front end and back end code in non closure languages. But yeah, I think in business, I think niching down is actually much better. I knew a developer once who you're going to think this is a made up story, but it totally isn't. I swear on Scout's Honor, who called them <laughs> called himself a Java 1.4 rock star. It's like blew my mind because I'm like, what about 1.5? Are you just, are you like a roadie or I don't know what's, or that's it. No, no, no. I, I, anything from generics onward, I, you know, I'm 1.4. I was like, wow, that's, that's niche. I, I don't think it's, I mean, I'm a little tongue in cheek. I don't think that's niche. I think that's just like, he was done. Yeah. Well, I mean, like if you think about certain, certain enterprises, like I could see, like, I could see clients fitting into that niche, oddly mm. enough. Like, yeah. I think there are probably enterprises out there that use, like, really old version of, like, Java Enterprise Edition. Yeah. And so, kind of knowing, like, the ins and outs of that, probably very, very valuable to these enterprise customers. Yeah. But I could just, I'm also an optimist, so I could just be looking at it from a... You're incredibly <laughs> charitable. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Cool. So I'm, before I get to some of the stuff like that, your has garnered you probably the most attention. I want to hit on another one. So you've had access to GitHub Copilot for a while, but you prefer to craft artisanal software by hand, refining your code from exquisite Naples pizza and the finest quality Arabica coffee beans. <laughs> here, here. Tell me more about your coffee beans, but also your impression about robots doing coding for humans generally. Well, I'll, I'll just hit you with another platitude. I said, I think I said this to somebody, a Twitter friend the other day, in a world where everything is AI generated, authenticity becomes a competitive advantage. Mm. And I, I've been I've been kind of wrangling with this idea for a while. Now, I'll be honest, the Arabica beans are actually just like trashy Starbucks coffee. <laughs> I used to work at a Starbucks when I was young, so they got me early. Okay, like fair enough. I'm also allergic to dairy, so I don't even eat that much pizza. But still, I I still think it's valid. The closure code I was seeing from Copilot wasn't really that great. It was a lot of you can tell that they had trained it on, you know, Stack Overflow and certain projects on GitHub. Now for using Copilot for Go, it's pretty good. I'll admit for Go and JavaScript and what else? All the super, all the stuff at the top of the Tyobi index. But for Clojure, I was like a little underwhelmed. I was like, I think I could probably do this easier and better. Like I... If I'm being honest, the, the code is suggested for closure felt like the code you would see in a Stack Overflow answer. And so for some people, that's okay, right? But I was just like, this isn't really, this isn't me. Because part of writing code is, oh, this is a bit of a tangent, but part, part of writing code is like also like having a writing voice, mm. I think. For sure. It's the expression of an idea. And first of all, apologies to GitHub. It's not you. It's just the whole notion I find to be completely bankrupt. But maybe um, that's what you would expect me to say as a human programmer. I just think that there's no idea there. It's like automated copy and paste based on a popularity contest. It's so devoid of 
thought is just it's just mind-blowing i don't know I, I don't know about you but to me we're like in the business of solving a problem and that involves thinking and analysis and often seeing the problem from a novel perspective right in a different way it's not just rote copy and paste but i don't know i mean maybe that's a controversial thing to say I like that. I like the way you described it. Automated copy and paste popularity contest. That is yeah. that is essentially what machine learning models are, a popularity mm-hmm. contest. Yeah, for sure. And we all know that, you know, the most popular music is absolutely the best music, right? So, I don't know. I just I I find the entire project completely suspect. But your mileage may vary. Cool. So, now I guess let's let's talk about you we can't not talk about your some of your greatest hits. I saw recently you released your part two of your series on design patterns. Super curious to hear you elaborate a little bit more. Give us a teaser for those in the audience that maybe haven't come across it yet, although I, perhaps they were under a rock or something, but you never know. And and we we do have, just kidding aside, you know, broad, broad listenership. So yeah, I guess... Tell us a little bit about the series. What got you interested in writing it? Is there a part three that we can look forward to? Or yeah, just any of that. Yeah, I. it's a series that I wanted to write for a while. Mm-hmm. Basically, since like the first closure job that I had. But I didn't really understand. I don't think I understood enough back then. Because back then, you, I was like the arrogant junior software developer. And yeah, I wanted to write it because... I got a lot of, and you can see this in the anecdotes of the series, because I I write anecdotes in my, they're like fake anecdotes, like fiction, <laughs> in my, my blog posts. Yeah. And so I wanted to write this for a while, but I realized, oh, sorry, let me back up here, that I get a lot of pushback on anything software engineering or design related in a lot of the jobs that I've had, which I, I thought was like really strange because... This kind of like important. And I've seen closure code bases just out of hand. And I, I also was like a, a software design nerd for a while, software engineering nerd for a while, because I took my career maybe too seriously in the beginning. But what I, I wanted to really get at the heart of with this series was that there is a need for this. And the, the reason design patterns exist is because they solve some problem in code right? They solve design any, if you're designing something by definition, like design solves a problem. And I still see these problems in closure code, just because we have a functional programming language doesn't mean we don't have these problems. We still have problems of things being coupled together and not being easy to change or extend or whatever it might be. So you can see this recurring theme in the, the post, the series, where I, I break down when to use a pattern. I think that's really important because a lot of the pushback that I get, it's either we don't need them or there's the people think it's like code style, that like somehow design patterns are code style. And that's just not true. Code style is a completely different problem. It's a readability problem. And I do, I can empathize that design patterns might not make code more readable but they're certainly separate from style, like code style, like style guidelines or style guides or whatever. So yeah, I started writing about that and I was just like, 
over the years, I've just come to realize like, oh, hey, like there's a lot of who who is the, I'm not giving credit, but there there's a computer scientist who said that, you know, uh, design patterns are a catalog of all the features your programming language lacks. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I wanted to start covering like what these these patterns might look like in Clojure, especially after seeing Misadopt, Misadopt, am I saying that right? Misadopt.com. Mm. There's posts on design patterns in Clojure. But in a, in a way, mine was kind of a rebuttal to that because I don't really like a lot of those examples as they rely too heavily <laughs> on the Java implementation. Right. Yeah, so that's, yeah, I guess to sort of answer all of your questions. The motivation here was like threefold. Yeah, so it's it, you know it's interesting. I think I've heard some of the same reactions in general, not specifically you know to your posts, but just you know in conversation. Or I think that there's a distinction here. It's like well, I don't know. I, I think of it as one of capitalization, right? So like, do we need capital D, capital P design patterns? Or it's like I think that's this thing as defined as written here. It's like not useful for, I don't think of it in that way. I think I'm more sort of in your camp. There are just either heuristics or just ways of approaching a problem that are natural and common. And not everything has to be like an invention from scratch. I think that there are things that we do. You know, we sometimes we call them idioms and then nobody's offended by <laughs> saying it's idiomatic to do something in a particular language. I think it's just approaches. And, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me that languages lend themselves to particular approaches and recognizing them and even naming them so that we have a shared vocabulary with which to discuss these things with other developers, I think is a good thing. So Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So is there a part three coming or are you done with the topic or what? Yeah, I think there's a part three coming. Part two was a lot less concrete than part one. Part one, I was able to draw parallels very easily because of the direct, it was like, there's like actual direct features of closure where we can use them instead of design patterns. Part two was a little more abstract. It was more like, here's how to use like lots of function composition. The reason we have a builder is because we need, we don't have currying and yeah. And and so like part two is a little more abstract. Part three, I probably will do part three for completeness. Mm-hmm. And then maybe a couple like extra popular patterns that aren't like gang of four patterns or whatever. Sure. But I yeah, the the you're probably hinting at I did say that writing a second one was kind of a slog. And so I'm not sure if I'm gonna write something else before part three. Right. There's other posts that I've been thinking about writing. Like I, I thought about writing an in-depth guide to on like closure chunking. I don't know why, but I always thought chunking was like a brilliant idea. And I spent probably way too much time reading closure.core, the actual source code, including the closure.lang.whatever, all the Java sources for it as well. So I have a pretty good idea of how chunking works because there's not, there's just some stuff missing, some documentation that should be filled in. Not that anybody really needs to like use chunking directly like you can just take a sequence or an iterator you can take an iterator and then put it into iter iterator seeker whatever that function is you'll get a chunk sequence back 
And like a lot of or vectors, vectors when they are cast cast to sequence, they become a chunk sequence automatically. Just stuff like that. I'm pretty interested in that. Another series, another thing I want to write, or maybe it'll be a series. I want to explore memory leaks and closure script code. I've had in at least when like developing, I've had closure script memory leaks that were pretty pretty challenging to track down. And there's not really a whole lot out there on the subject. So I guess it, more broadly, and this is not even maybe not even related to the question about the series, but I my my core content tenants, I guess if you want to say that, mm. is that I want to write about closure for professional developers. Like I want to write about stuff that is usable and actionable for professional closure developers. Very cool. I look forward to it. Both of those sound fascinating to me. And I, I for one, encourage you. I think any time spent reading Closure Core, like the implementation is repaid tenfold. I don't know. Maybe that's a little bit hyperbolic, but I, I always, I, I don't know. There, there are folks that I admire for their ability to black box maybe a little bit better than I do. I always want to go down one more level and get the next layer down to sort of complete my understanding. And I don't know, some, sometimes I struggle to to not do that, but I, I find that at least it helps me. Yeah, me too. I, I always will go on closuredocs.org. I'll look up a function. I'll read the doc string and look at the examples. And then I immediately, I always go to the source. I don't know why. I always do. I think it's because in my first closure job, we have really bad documentation. So I was just very used to like going and hunting down the code to read the code that I might be using. And so I think that's where that habit came from. I do try very hard not to couple my code to the implementation of the code sure. that I'm reading. But yeah, so I, I totally, I totally understand the need for that. And I think that there's another idea, which is, you know, some function may solve a problem that you have at hand, right? And so just going and looking at the API documentation, you know, even in the REPL, just pull up the doc string, especially closures doc strings, I find to be exceptionally good. So now you know how to call it and what it does, et cetera. But there's a different problem one layer down, which is, how do you work from something more primitive to provide this abstraction or whatever it may be, provide this functionality, provide like a nice API of this. And, and it's like a different kind of problem and a different sort of pattern. And I think so much of what we do is pattern recognition and even synthesis, right? Like a lot of the code that we write is producing combinations or novel combinations of you know, more primitive patterns to solve a given problem. And the more of those we we can have exposure to and understand and collect, I think, you know, it pays off in the long run. Absolutely. Absolutely. When when junior developers ask me for advice, I always tell them to try and read the core library code of whatever their choice of language is. Yep. Because it's it's going to be messy and it's going to be complex and technically challenging, but you will definitely grow as a developer by reading that code. For sure. So I have one more sort of question, another one more. It's about something else that you've written. And I purposely, I'm going to tell you now, I purposely didn't read it because I wanted to ask you about it and sort of 
experience sort of what you were saying firsthand for the first time without prejudicing myself. But you wrote an article entitled Closure Needs a Rails, but not for the reason you think. So I was wondering if you would indulge me and and tell me why. And the listeners, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this was a slightly incendiary piece. My incendiary, I mean, it went to the top of Hacker News and I got a lot of flack for it. Understandably, you know, tensions like passions run run deep or whatever. Yeah. So the, the the premise of the post was that it would be ideal to have something that the community coalesces around because I noticed that a lot of open source efforts in the closure community go toward building web frameworks. I'm not saying everybody does that, but a lot of people do that. And so there becomes like a problem of a lack of libraries and a lack of, and a, well, not a lack of, well, yeah, a lack of libraries. And there's also a problem of existing libraries having software rot. And so the central premise of the post was that because of this misplaced effort, it kind of weakens the business case for using closure. And there was a lot of, there was obviously, there was a lot of pushback on it, I guess. And I can understand where people are coming from. People are ask me, you know, you could just use interop. Like this is a non-issue. But there's a number of problems I have with interop. It feels out of place. It's it feels janky to me to use for one, and it's challenging to use with big frameworks. Closure interop, and three, in my mind, interop sounds like using really expensive closure developers to write Java. And plus, it's not. Somebody brilliantly pointed out that even if people don't think it is, think it's a non-issue, if people think it's a non-issue, it's really, it's tough for new people to learn Clojure because they almost have to learn like a language and a half. They have to learn Clojure and Java and then use Interop. Now, I'll admit, like, I find Interop awkward, but it's good. Like, I've used Interop and I, I do use it if I have to. I think this... Like a core criticism I received was that like that interop is meant to be used. And I, I agree with that, but more so that like, I don't think, I don't really like using interop, I guess. I try to abstain from using interop. I'll try to like encapsulate any interop code that I use into like a namespace or a couple of functions or something like that. Mostly because I find that it, it breaks the, the model, the paradigm of closure, right? Yeah. Like this isn't Scala. So it's like really weird to use interop in my book. And yeah. And so there's all these problems. I I tried to address all of these problems, but I also wrote the post really fast to capitalize on some hacker news discussion about it Mm. in the comments on another post. Mm. And so part of my thesis got lost in the the haste. But yes, that was that was like the, the core thesis is that I think that maybe our efforts could be directed elsewhere so that we can make a better business case for closure. Right. Right. I, well, just speaking to the, you know, sort of the flame aspect to it, I think it's just, you know, I don't know, it's a sad social phenomenon. I think that folks oftentimes don't just start with the most charitable reading of, you know, somebody else's ideas. I mean, I think even if we, even when we, we may disagree and I think that's perfectly fine. We, we mm-hmm. should be able to disagree without being disagreeable. And I mean, I think you certainly have a point that 
interop is incredibly powerful in closure. That doesn't mean that that is that you want interop at every level or every layer of your program, right? I mean, I think that we would consider that rightly consider that an anti-pattern. So I don't, I don't think, I think it's kind of a shallow critique. Again, I, I don't, I'm trying to interpret them charitably, but I think if your, if your thesis is, you know, we, we need a, a really good, powerful, popular is the wrong word, but well-maintained web framework. And, you know, we can, we can argue whether some of those things or parts of those things already exist, but I, I don't think that that's super controversial. I think it's nice to have a place for the community to coalesce and to be able to contribute to solving a common problem that we, that we all have. And certainly, I, I don't want to discount work that is out there, reagent, and oh, re- re- reframe, and... Uh, well, yeah, well, this yeah. is also another part of, like, Fulcrum. the yeah. the argument that I was making. I think I mentioned, like, the WebSack foreclosure is already very mature. It's just mm-hmm. kind of more decentralized. There's Ring and Composure or Reach It, if you're that kind of person, or maybe mm-hmm. you're like a... Maybe you're like a, a Yada and Biddy person or whatever. But yeah, we have Reframe and Reagent. And so the web stack is very mature, but it seems like closure projects that get a lot of attention are always just like new web frameworks mm. that look suspiciously a lot like Composure mm. already. So I yeah, that that was I just yeah, that was kind of my my call to action was maybe consider directing efforts elsewhere and let's all get together and Maybe just de facto say like, this is our web thingy. This is our web thingy. You know, Python has Django and Ruby has Rails and Elixir has Phoenix. And so Clojure has these five different libraries. <laughs> like, I, I see. I see. I see where, you, where you're coming from. Sort of like the flagship project that brings, brings everybody to the yard, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's like, and like, com- like competitors are always going to show up. It's not like, you know, there's Sinatra for Ruby and that's, there's not like, you know, other web frameworks aren't going to show up. But I think if there's, if there's like a de facto framework, a de facto web stack, you know, people will be less inclined to try and make their own. And then hopefully there'll be more open source efforts and then less of the excessive interop anti-pattern. And then a better business case for it because, yeah, like it, I, I just find that like I've championed closure at every job I've ever had, but you know it's hard to make people see the light, especially when I've got to like I go and find a library that's seven years old and out of date with the API that it works with. That's that's challenging. That's challenging to sell management on. Yeah. So that the second part of that, I'm 100% with you that if there are libraries that sort of so there's there is definitely a distinction between a library being sort of done and a library being abandoned. I think that's a that's a crucial distinction for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I've talked about this at length with other people as well. It's like I think libraries can be done. There yeah. are things that probably just like don't need to be extended, but if software rot is a possibility, then that's that's you need that needs to be maintained, hopefully. Not to diminish the efforts of the open source community, because I understand that it is work. But yes, my this is my call to action or manifesto. Maybe let's do some other stuff. And I think just to just add one more thought there, I think one of the places where that shows up is especially when we're doing interop, right? So if your library is a wrapper around some other library and now you're beholden to 
their API change whims, right? And so if they introduce a, a new API or a backward incompatible one, then you know now you see bit rot. But anyway, it's been it's been a lot of fun, and holy cow, the time has flown by. I guess I'll ask you for a parting piece of advice that maybe you'd like to share with the audience, and and we can wrap up. Yeah, parting advice. I'm never I'm never good at these things, so I don't know. Keep your stick on the ice. <laughs> <laughs> now that was quintessentially Canadian. Thank you, Janet, for joining us today. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for another episode of the Cognicast. Cheers. Thanks, Christian. That was my pleasure. Thank you. Our host this week was Christian Romney, who is at Christian Romney on Twitter. Episode cover art is by Russ Olson. Audio production is by Bear Cave Audio. The Cognicast is produced by Jarrett Benford and Robert Randolph. The intro music is Crazy G, played by Russ Olson. The outro music is by Nazca at nazcamusic.com. I'm Jarrett Benford. Please stay safe and healthy out there, and thanks for listening to The Cognicast. Keep checking this feed. We'll have an exciting announcement about the future of The Cognicast coming in 2023. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.